0: Turn your Bibles to the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 5, for if, Jeremiah chapter 5. After 60 years of divine silence, there appeared in Jerusalem a prophet of the Lord. He was a young man, though his body was as cadaverous, his skull so domed he looked ravaged. He had a coarse thicket of hair and a voice which was like a whining reed that no one could tune out. Suddenly this man was standing at the potsherd gate, facing into Jerusalem, delivering the oracle of the Lord and a nasal wail. Well. What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went so far from me? I brought you to a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits. But when you came, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. And the people of Jerusalem said, who is this? And what does he know about heritage and survival and history and reality? And even while they murmured against him, they gathered at the gate and listened. Jeremiah was called by God to be the voice of God, to speak the word of God to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to blast the trumpet of God and declare that the enemy would prevail The enemy's military power would be the very judgment of God. The call of God comes to Jeremiah in 627 B.C. when he's just a youth, probably still in his teens. He tells the people what they do not want to hear. He declares to the leaders what they have tried to deny. And Jeremiah calls Jerusalem to a radical obedience to the commandments of thus saith the Lord God Almighty. It really shouldn't have all that much power, should it? It's just a a two-letter word, if I ev. But once IF begins a sentence, it controls everything which follows. If its power is all out of proportion to its size. Sometimes we just ignore it. We are really, really good at the then part. We forget the if part, but we are all good. At the then part, you, you remember your English 101, a conditional clause, if, then, surely you remember something about that. If comes, the conditional clauses come quite early in Scripture all the way back to Genesis. And then we read about it through the prophets like today and then the Psalter and then the Gospels and then the epistles. It's everywhere, seemingly in every page, every paragraph. God says a big if. problem is, as Jeremiah reminds God's people, That even if they forget the word if, God does not forget it, if. God will do what God has promised, if, if. Back in Genesis 4, the ifs go back that far. You remember the story of the two sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. Abel is a keeper of the flocks, and Cain... Is a gardener, and they both both bring offerings to the Lord. And the smoke of Abel's sacrifice goes straight up as if Yahweh himself is bringing, breathing it in his nostrils and he is pleased with Abel's sacrifice. It pleases God. And then Cain, the gardener, lights his and the smoke stays way low down on the ground. And well, I imagine that he Cain coughs and chokes, it's clear God has not breathed in his offering. God has rejected his offering. Offering and well, the Lord asking, "What is wrong with you, Cain?" And we know what's wrong. He's jealous that God has accepted Abel's sacrifice, but God has not accepted his sacrifice. His sibling rivalry. And then there in Genesis four verse seven, God says to Cain, "If you do well, if if you do the right things, if you do well." Will not your countenance be lifted? But if you do not do well, sin is crouching. And we know murder is crouching. Sin's waiting on you, Cain. If, if you don't do well, if you don't do well, sin will overcome you and you will murder your brother. God warned him, God loved him enough, even though there is some reason that he rejected Cain's sacrifice, God wanted him to do well. And so God said, things will get better, Cain, if, if you do well, if. Then it's Moses. Not only is it Genesis, it's Exodus. We could, we could spend a long time with the ifs of the Bible. We, we read right past them, but they're there. Every page, every paragraph, it's in Exodus. Exodus 19, 5. Therefore, if... He says to ancient Israelites, if, if, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasure possession out of all the people's if. It's a big if. It's a conditional sentence. If you obey me, if you keep the covenant, then you're my people. If you obey my voice, if you keep the commands, then you are my special people. It's amazingly how selectively we can read the old text, how we read the New Testament. We read the then. We've got the then down pat, but for some reason we forget the if at the beginning of the sentence. Well if you want to keep going, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy seven twelve. if you pay attention, if you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep his covenant of love with you as he swore to your forefathers. If you are obedient, Deuteronomy, 1 Kings 2, 4, if your heirs take heed to their way to walk before me in faithfulness. With all their heart and with all their life, there shall not fail you a successor on the throne of Israel. If, if, then you'll always have a king. Or he says to Solomon in 1 Kings 9, And as for you, if you, Solomon, if you walk before me as your David, David your father, walk with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, then... I will establish your throne forever. There shall not cease to be a successor on the throne of Israel. 1 Kings 9, 6, and 7. If you turn aside from following me, you or your children, or do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, that I will cut off Israel from the land I have given them. If, or you know this one well, don't you? 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. If my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. If my people, if they confess, if they humble themselves, they're sorry for their sins. We miss the if. We miss the emphasis on being obedient to God's commands. The fabric of our faith must be woven together not only with God's grace, of course that's there, but with the resulting obedience that we that we respond to his grace with obedience. He commands and and we do. We don't really want it that way. We want God's promises unconditionally. want to read scripture from Genesis to Revelation as if there is no if. And yet I find the if in every page and every paragraph. If we're obedient to God, then. Look in Jeremiah chapter 5, our if-then passage today. Jerusalem is all abuzz with the news of God's unconditional promises. And Jeremiah, just a teenager, springs upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and brings them a new reference point, the reference point of Moses. It's hard. It's demanding. But it's the truth. If the if is uttered by God a God who refuses to be tamed by the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a God who refuses to be controlled by his people. It's an if that reflects God's freedom and God's power and God's sovereignty, God's absolute demand for obedience. God will not be mocked. He will not give in to an easy faith. He says if. It's the Mosaic if. It's the if of Jeremiah. It's the if Now, Jerusalem is afraid of Babylon, a foreign enemy. They're scared of invading kings and invading kingdoms. That's not the real problem. They need not be afraid of other kings or other kingdoms. They need to be afraid of their own God, the God of if. If they do what he asks, there'll be no invading army. Do you understand this morning the power of if? I can't offer a vote this morning and we can just vote the if out. It's not a popular opinion sort of thing. It's it's God's opinion and it's the only opinion that matters. It can't be outflanked, the if, by policy. Nothing can change this if. It's God's if, it's in God's word. If we do what we're supposed to do. There is a fundamental misorientation in the life of Jerusalem at this point. And the prophet wants you to see, to know that pardon and forgiveness and grace, but it's not cheap. Forgiveness still requires our coming to terms with God. And the people of God cannot see themselves as autonomous apart from God. They must heed the call of God. Jeremiah 5.1 roam to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem and look and take note and seek in her open squares if you can find a man, if there's one who does justice, who seeks truth, then I will pardon her. God says to Jeremiah, I'm looking around all over. You go to town square, you look high, you look low. If you can find one Israelite who's repented, if you find one Israelite who does the right thing, who seeks truth, then I will pardon my people. There is no trace of obedience anywhere in this city of God. God says, go find one, if you can find one. Pardon seems impossible and forgiveness seems so far away. The people, verse 3, refuse to take the correction of God. They harden their faces like rocks, verse 3. Look at the end of verse 3. They refuse to repent. God says, verse four, I'm going to look for somebody. First, he says, I'm going to look among the poor people. Sure, there's someone who's poor, who's repentant. Nope, none of the poor. Then he says, verse four, I'm going to look among the great. See if there's anyone. Verse five, the great. Well, they know the way of God. Surely some of the rich folk are are seeking truth and justice. But he looks around and says, no, they've broken the yoke and burst the bonds. And then verse six, he says, look, a wild jungle. A lion is in the forest of Jerusalem. A wolf is in the desert. A leopard is watching their cities. Why, Jerusalem has become a wild jungle with the wrath of God because God looks high and God looks low. Jeremiah looks at the poor and then he looks at the rich and there is no one who repents. Look what God says in verse 7. Look at the beginning of verse 7. Why? Why? Why should I forgive you? Why? Look at verse 12. They have lied about the Lord and said, not he. Misfortune will not come upon us. We will not see the sword of famine. And the prophets are as wind. The word is not in them. Thus it will be done to them. The false prophets were tickling the ears of the people and telling them whatever they wanted to hear. They're just wind. Those prophets who say it's all going to be okay. Jeremiah says it's not okay. Their prophets have lied and misled the people of Jerusalem. And God is desperately, desperately looking for a way to pardon his people. He wants to forgive them, and yet he's holy and righteous and just, and there must be repentance. And verse 3 again, they refuse to repent to God. Pastor, that's the Old Testament not that way in the New Testament. It all has changed. Have you forgotten? What was the first word of Jesus in his first sermon? Repent. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Back in the old covenant, God would not deal out cheap grace. And again in the new, God is the same. Our relationship with God always has been and always will be dependent upon the big if. Our willingness to turn 180 degrees, our willingness to turn from our sins and repent, and only then can we know the grace and power of the cross that paid for our sins. Jerusalem has imagined that she is immune from the wrath of God. Jerusalem has become a, a, a city with no reference point to, thus saith the Lord God Almighty. You cannot make God a docile beggar. You cannot make God a helpless patron. He will be neither. The city of Jerusalem has lost by now its chance for forgiveness and now stands under the powerful judgment of God. The dilemma is real for God, it's real for Jerusalem, and God struggles between vengeance and forgiveness and the struggle, and in that struggle hangs the destiny of Jerusalem. Look at verse 15. And so in verse 15, an army is coming, a nation from afar, a nation, you don't know their language, they babble, Babylon, this nation with a strange tongue, they are coming and look what they will do, verse 17, they will devour your harvest and your food, they will devour your sons and your daughters, they will devour your flocks and your herds, they will devour your vines and your fig trees, and they will demolish... Your fortified cities, devour, 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 demolish. They're coming. Destruction is coming. And yet God's grace always, verse 18, it won't be utter destruction. I will not make you complete destruction, verse 18. No, rather there will be an exile. They will go to a land that is not theirs until they can repent. Verse 21, O foolish and senseless people, you have eyes but you do not see, and you have ears but you refuse to hear my words. Verse 22, Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble in my presence? For I have placed in the sand a boundary for the sea, an eternal decree, so it cannot cross over. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. And though they roar, they cannot cross over it. God says, aren't you afraid of me? I'm the guy who took my hand and said to the ocean, you will stop right here. And they beat and they beat, but they cannot go over my hand. I have drawn the boundary and the sand. And yet you do not fear me? The God who says to the ocean and the waves... You can pound all you want to, but I made you, and you will stop right here. You see, the crowd in Jerusalem was self-convinced, self-absorbed, and self-sufficient. They're stubborn and rebellious. Look at verse 23. This people has a stubborn and a rebellious heart. They have turned aside and departed. They do not say in their heart, let us now fear the Lord our God who gives rain in its season, but in the autumn the rain and the spring rain and who keeps for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. This is the God who controls the rain. Yet we are rebellious against him. Verse 25, they haven't realized that their sin has turned away the good blessings of God. Look at verse 28. They're fat, they're sleek, their deeds are wicked. They don't care about the orphans in the city. They don't care about the widow in the city. They don't care about the poor folk in their city. They trap men like other men trap birds. Verse 26, they have ignored the everlasting if of God. They find out in 587 B.C., The world comes to a crashing halt just like teenage Jeremiah told them that it would. They realize all of a sudden in Babylon as they're in exile that well, the the promises of God are controlled by the big if. That the boundaries that God placed for them were for their good and they're just as real as the boundaries of the sea. God that lays out boundaries for you and me. And every time we cross those boundaries of our life, just like Jerusalem, we bring destruction to our life because she forgot, Jerusalem forgot the big if. A man and his family were in their four-wheel drive vehicle and they were going on vacation at last. They'd waited and saved. They're going camping, all the gears in the back of the four-wheeler and, well, they... They come to a sign that says, road closed. The dad says, you know, they put that sign up sometimes prematurely and they won't do work for weeks and I don't see any cars out here working. Whatever it is, we got four wheel drive, we'll get around it, we'll save a lot of time. And so he just goes around the sign that says, road closed. He's going for miles and no problems. Look, kids, look, wife, I told you there's nothing. There's nothing here. I've got this. We've got this. He was so proud that he had decided to go around the road closed sign. And after about four miles, he looks ahead and breaks out in the sweat and sees the whole bridge has been washed away. There's no way to cross eating that crow that a wife and kids will feed a man that tries to overcome the rules of the road. He was a road warrior. I don't fault the man. He was a, he was a road warrior. I've been there. He turned around and heads the family back on spray painted in big capital letters on the back of the road clothes sign were the words and his wife and kids already aloud. welcome back, stupid, it said. <laughs> That's the way it is with God's commands. That's the way it is, isn't it? God's word tells us how to live. And when we cross over those commandments, when we go our own way, when we find ourselves headed towards absolute ruin and destruction and terrible things happen when we go places we should not go. There is no cheap grace available for the people of God in antiquity, and there's no cheap grace available for the people of God in modernity either. World War II, Lutheran pastor, martyr of the war, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, cheap grace, that's like preaching forgiveness without requiring repentance. That's like baptism without church discipline. That's like going to communion without confessing your sins. It's absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is a grace that doesn't require any discipleship. It's grace without a cross. It's grace without a Christ living and incarnate. Richard A. Schmidt of the St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Daphne, Alabama, was quoted. I I read it. He published it in the Methodist Reporter. He says, and I quote, God is less interested, I suppose, in our acts of obedience than he is the mere pleasure of our company. I don't know what scripture he's reading. He's missed the if. God is awfully interested in our acts of obedience, much more than the mere pleasure of our company. W.C. Fields is quoted as saying, I have spent a lot of time looking for the loopholes of the Bible. I have two. You have two. Today, we must absolutely confront our failures, our foibles, our follies, and confess our sins before God. We want the promises of God without the premises of God. Pastor friend of mine says every time he looks at his wife's bedside table and sees the book, The Promises of God. He thinks, I need to go write the, uh, the companion edition that's called The Premises of God. He says, The Promises of God, that book sells, a bestseller. If I write The Premises of God, I won't be able to give it away. We want the Promises of God without The Premises of God. Pastor, you're awfully Old Testament today. Are you sure? Are you sure it's just the Old Testament? Didn't Jesus say in John 14, 5, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's Jesus. That's New Testament. If you love me, then, if, then, if you really love me, then you will be obedient. Or verses 20 through 24, the same chapter. If anyone, another big if, if anyone, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and will come to him and will make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words and the word which you hear is not mine, but the father's who send me or, or John fifteen ten. if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. If then, if you keep my commandments, then you abide in my love. I have kept my Father's commandments, and I abide in His love. Or First John 5, 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Okay, okay, you don't like Jesus. Maybe Paul can help you out. We asked Paul in Romans 6, Paul, can we just keep sinning so God can pour out more grace? Isn't that the plan? The more we sin, the more God's to give us grace. In Romans 6 2, Paul says, oh no, no, you've missed it. May it never be. May get a toy. A nice translation is, heck no. You don't keep sinning for grace to abound. In an article entitled, God Lights, James R. Edwards, traces how the more we obey God, the more real God becomes to us and the greater our love for God grows. And the more we love God, the more we become like God. And obedience is not a a penalty levied on faith, but rather is the strength of our faith. Faith and obedience go together. They're twins. The Bible absolutely will not separate faith from obedience as though obedience is some tax levied upon our faith. No, it's not a tax on our salvation. God cannot separate them and still offer salvation. There is nothing about love that is no longer love apart from obedience. Only those who obey can believe and only those who believe can obey. A parishioner complained about the pastor's Constant calling of the congregation to draw closer to God. And she's honest. She says, I don't really want to be all that close to God, Pastor, if you don't know the truth. She says, I just want to sneak in the back door of heaven, you know, the side door. I don't want to come in the front door. Just come in the back, you know, sit in the back. He said, are you serious? You don't want to be close to God? Oh, no, no, I'd like to make a C in heaven, just like I did. She said, in ninth grade, I decided I want to make all C's. She said, I did. Every time, every grade, I made a C. She says, you know, if you fail, you have to repeat the grade. And I didn't want to repeat the grade, so I didn't want to do that. But she said, if you start making A's and people have expectations of you, and there's all these expectations, and what's well, like that with God? If you're too bad, then he sends you to hell. But if you're really, really good, if you make an A, then he'll send you to India or something like that and and I I don't want that to happen either and so I I don't really want I just the back door will do for me just don't make a big deal about it well quite obviously apart from misunderstanding that her salvation is based on her good deeds it never is it's based on the grace of God her description of c-class Christianity unfortunately depicts where many of us live we want the promises but not the premises We want salvation, but no expectation of a relationship. The problem, of course, with that form of Christianity is it is foreign to Jesus, foreign to the apostle Peter, and the letters of Paul. The message is this. If you repent, if, if you repent, it's not automatic. The kingdom of God is at hand for you. And then in gratitude, obey his commands. Let us pray. Oh God, we hear the big if today. May we be reminded your grace cost you the the life of your son. And and we are to respond in repentance and obedience. And only respond that way.